if you were with us in our last session, I reviewed the material relative to the thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom, desire to clear up some of the misunderstanding and answer a few more questions that I have received. I want to be clear. Sometimes, especially in the matters of eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things, there's so much to get your arms around that um, it's difficult to deliver it clearly enough. Here's a case in point. I thought this was really cute, funny. A mother sent me an email this past week that said, my younger son, about seven years old, spent Saturday night at a friend's house and went to church with them on Sunday. When he got home after church over dinner at our home, we were discussing what you had covered Sunday morning. In giving him an overview, I I mentioned the millennial kingdom, and he said, oh yeah, that's when we're going to have a thousand years of rain. (laughs) From his ears, you can see it, can't you? Bless his heart. She writes, I guess the good news is he was listening, sort of. That's cute. Well, we're about to dive into another subject that has raised perhaps more questions and more objections over the centuries than perhaps any other biblical topic. It is the doctrine of the last judgment and an eternal hell. In a recent issue of the News and Observer, there was an interesting article in the faith section of the newspaper. Maybe you've seen that section. Several in our fellowship sent me a copy of that article, which I'm grateful I don't subscribe and I'm well sourced by people who do research for me as, as informal research assistants, and I'm grateful for that. This is in the faith section. I have read enough of that section to know it really ought to be renamed to give it your best guess section, because it has little to do with objective biblical truth, certainly true faith in Christ. This particular article ran under the headline, quote, It's God's job, not ours, to give out salvation tickets. I agree with the headline. We can't give anybody a salvation ticket. However, we can tell them where to get them, right? In this article, the author took issue with someone who had challenged him by writing in relative to the text of John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. The contributor wrote, and and this was included in the article, Worshiping anyone other than Jesus Christ would be teaching false doctrine that effectively means they will spend eternity in hell. I know this isn't a popular view, but it's the biblical truth, end quote. The journalist, a member, he calls himself a member of the God Squad, I guess that means he represents God, wrote his answer in the News and Observer by saying, I appreciate the power of your faith, but it isn't compassionate. He goes on to say, I can't believe Gandhi is rotting in hell. He goes on to explain that God will let all of the virtuous people into heaven, even those who've denied Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, he used the illustration, he said, think of a a Buddhist monk who denies salvation through Christ, well, he explained, God considers him, because of his sincerity, an anonymous Christian. Quote, 
He got that phrase from a Jesuit scholar. You won't find that, by the way, in the Bible if you're thumbing back your way to the concordance. It's not there. He went on to explain this, and it was intriguing to me. He said anonymous Christians are people who, even though they've rejected Christ throughout their lives, because they are good people, they'll get into heaven. Evidently, they were Christians. They just didn't know it until they had to. Then the journalist rebuked the contributor who dared to suggest Christ's words in John 14, 6. And he wrote, It's not your job to tell people they are damned. God didn't put you in charge of dispensing salvation tickets. God put you on earth to witness to your faith by keeping your heart open and your mouth shut. I wonder what kind of neighbor you'd be if you saw a house in flames across the street and you said, God would rather me keep my mouth shut, but I tell you what, I'll go over and mow their lawn. I'll show my faith, but I won't warn them of this fiery judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, the fundamental issue behind this kind of advice is the belief that either a literal hell does not exist, or if it does, only really Really bad people go there. Hell is a place for the devil. It's a place for Hitler and and Stalin and Attila the Hun. And the trouble is, Jesus Christ made it very clear that no one can enter heaven unless they've been born again. Spiritually, made alive by the power of the Spirit of God invisibly removed from the family of Adam and death into the family of God and life. And you can't get in, no matter how sincere, unless you have had that spiritual transaction take place in your life. What I found interesting was that this journalist completely ignored the words of Christ and went immediately to, I can't imagine Gandhi rotting in hell. You can't ignore his words. He said earlier in John chapter 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Listen, these claims of Christ have to mean something. Jesus Christ is a liar, a lunatic, or he is truly Lord. This is what C.S. Lewis called the great trilemma. That Christ was either a liar, he was just making this stuff up. It really isn't true. Or he's a lunatic, he has this grand Messiah complex and he just felt good about himself and thought everybody ought to come to him if they wanted to get up there. Or he is a Lord. You can't have it but one way. So why do people throughout our culture, like this newspaper journalist, flirt with the vocabulary of truth but deny the definitions of Christ's claims because you have this naughty problem, this troubling issue relative to this book and the God-man. You, you have a problem with the apostles and the, and the prophets before them. It is this issue of final judgment and, and a place called 
hell. The intention of God is to warn us that it really exists. In fact, in his word in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, he says, All of the world will become accountable to me, he said. Accountable to God. That's, that's, the, that's the thing the world resists, rejects, tries to mock, distort, deny, redefine. Some way we've got to get around that and, 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 and still get into the place this book introduced called heaven. The word accountable. All the world will become accountable is hupatikos. It's a word that literally means to, to answer to. To be liable for judgment. It's a legal term that refers to being liable for punishment. You see, the problem isn't that Jesus and the apostles and the prophets weren't clear. The problem was they were very clear, but our world does not want to hear it. And the apostle is saying that there's a coming day when all the world of unbelievers will be brought to a trial before God. And they will be liable for everything they've ever done. For the believer, we'll never stand before God based on our deeds. We've accepted the gift. We'll stand before him relative to how we lived our deeds and will be rewarded for that which was profitable. That which is unprofitable will be will we'll burn up as wood, hay, and stubble. But the unbeliever will stand before God and give an account, as we'll talk about in our study. Uh, and in fact, this is this paragraph where we're at now in Revelation chapter 20. If you haven't been with us, we're at verse 11. There's so much here that I'm, I'm going to take two sessions to get through it, to work through it with you. And I'll attempt to answer in our next session some things that come out of a text like this. It might be a three-parter. It might be a 30-parter. I have no idea, but we're going to get through it. Questions like, well, what about those who've never heard the gospel? Are they going to hell? How could God send anybody to hell who never had a missionary deliver the gospel to them? How could anybody be sent to hell who never had a Bible? Does hell really last forever for people, or is that just for the devil? And all those other bad people I mentioned. Well, I'll answer those as we work our way through this. What I want to do today is to introduce with just a few phrases of John's vision the most despised doctrine of future events. In fact, it is the most offensive, repulsive doctrine of biblical Christianity to our world. It is this doctrine of final judgment that is too horrifying to even begin to imagine when billions of unbelievers will be summoned to court by guess who? Jesus Christ. R.G. Lee, the preacher of old, a few generations ago, called this day payday. And I heard his sermon on an old cassette one time. He preached a sermon entitled Payday Someday. Some of you have heard that. Well, according to this scene in Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11, payday has arrived. Divine courtroom of God is about to deliver a call to order and the great trial that ends human history as we know it is about to begin. 
Let's take a look first at this unforgettable setting. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Let's stop for just a moment. There are several descriptive phrases that John delivers for us that come out of his vision. He says, first of all, that this was a great throne. The word is megan, which gives us our word mega. This is a mega throne. This, is, this throne is so awesome and, and, and fearful and great because of the glory that is so great surrounding it. This is a great throne. All other thrones compared to this throne are small. This one is great. It's the idea. So this is the only court ever convened by one whose jurisdiction was universal. It's that great. He says it's also a white throne. The, the brilliance, the splendor of the light emanating from the one seated there. The throne has been described for us already with lightning flashes and the sound of thunder it's a terrifying thing at that moment to be on the other side of his grace where the mercy of God will be no more, so to speak. This is a white throne referencing the purity of his verdict. Lukan is the Greek word. It symbolizes absolute justness. There's not one speck of injustice. There isn't any hint of the potential of bribery. There's no spin in this courtroom. There's not one molecule of inequality. In other words, God's coming verdict of punishment to an everlasting hell is, is right and just and true. Mankind that stands before him is about to receive what it actually deserves. And you say, you've got to be kidding. How offensive is that? Think about it this way. It's one thing for the Bible to say that somebody gets thrown into hell because he wasn't good enough to get into heaven. People will buy that line of reasoning. They weren't good enough to get into heaven. They didn't follow the rules or didn't join the right church, didn't do the right things. Maybe they were a mass murderer. Yeah, that, he wasn't good enough to get into heaven. It's one thing to say someone isn't going to heaven because they don't deserve heaven. Listen, it is an entirely different thing to say that someone is going to hell because he deserves hell. That is offensive. Utterly offensive to every generation to believe that hell could possibly be deserved. Later on, John will tell us why. But here in verse 11, he informs us of this unforgettable setting, which involves a great, a white, and he mentions it's a throne. This isn't a desk for dialogue. This isn't a couch for therapy. This isn't a stool upon which some, 
some wise counselor may sit or some teacher. No, this is a this is a throne from which will be delivered the king's verdict. John makes reference to the king. Look at verse 11. He speaks of the one, him who sat upon it, capital H, a reference to God. Now, we have to go outside this text to know which person of the Godhead is instrumentally involved in the judgment of humanity. We know from a number of verses that God the Son shares the throne with God the Father. It's the place of authority. We, we know that he's seated on the throne. Revelation 22 refers to the throne of God and of the Lamb. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That means he's seated at the place of authority. He represents the triune God in, in this unique way. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 12, wrote that Christ having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It's a reference to the throne being shared by the Father and Son, the Spirit hovering there as well, a reference to the triune God certainly being in place. The Apostle Peter wrote that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, 1 Peter 3.22. They share the throne as equally divine, Along with the Spirit, God in three persons, we sang great truth. We believe it not because we understand it, but because the Bible delivers it. Now, although they share the throne, and all three persons equally divine, they yet have unique functions. Uh, we, we talk about the, the economic subordination of the triune God. Ontologically, they're equal. Economically, as it relates to function, they are subordinate. So you have Jesus doing the will of the Father, and you have the Spirit glorifying the Son. doesn't mean that they're less equal than, than the other. They have unique functions. And, and one of the unique functions of God the Son is that He will be the judge. Jesus Christ himself said in John chapter 5, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, S-O-N. Jesus Christ, then, is the judge. And by the way, this court can't be held if the judge is dead. He's alive, resurrected, ascended, Seated. In fact, it's this truth, by the way, of the resurrection of Christ that turned cowards into crusaders, isn't it? You have these, you have these apostles or disciples, before they got promoted, a few months earlier, what are they doing? They're denying him and running. Here's Peter cursing so that people would be fairly certain that he had nothing to do with the Galilean. Covering it up. Now, just a matter of weeks later, he's boldly preaching the gospel. What changed him? The judge is alive. And he's seen him. It's more than that. Acts chapter 10 informs us that after Jesus arose from the dead, and this is actually Peter preaching, I'll quote his words, he, Jesus, ordered us to proclaim to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, Christ, 
All the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. So he's telling people he's the coming judge and you need to believe in him so you can be forgiven of your sins. But if you caught it, the irony is this. The one who now receives people who will, he then will forgive their sin, will be the same one who will judge them who do not. And by the way, I don't know if you caught it. I'll read it again. Peter said, and he ordered us to proclaim to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God the Father as judge of the living and the dead. Didn't Jesus know that his followers weren't supposed to say things like that? That he's going to judge the world? Didn't Jesus know that we were just supposed to keep our hearts open and our mouths shut? Didn't Peter know that? He said, no, I'm under orders. We've been commanded to go, haven't we? And in the process of making disciples, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and to, and, and to teach them to observe all I've commanded, commanded you, and, and lo, I'm with you always. That, that isn't a suggestion. That isn't for really good Christians. That isn't for people who join the church, and everybody else doesn't have to sign on yet. That's for every one of us who know Christ. We have been commanded to tell our world the judge is coming who will judge the living and the dead. We cannot keep this to ourselves. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we beg the unbelieving world to be reconciled to God. Why? Well, for one, we want to glorify God and obey him. And yet the thing that moved Paul so word of tears was this idea of an unreconciled world being judged. There is a coming payday, that is. A terrifying verdict so terrible that we would never wish this upon anyone. The scene is, is actually made more terrifying by what John writes next in verse 11. Note, at the beginning we'll start there. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. Now notice, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Study all itself. In fact, there's quite a, a good debate among committed believers as to what God is going to do with the earth and the heavens. There are those that believe that he's going to burn the surface of it and uh, sort of burn away, as it were, the, the effects of sin. And they have a good argument. But John's vision here, coupled with numerous Old and New Testament passages, including primarily 2 Peter chapter 3, leaves little doubt in my mind that what will happen in between the ending of the kingdom and that brief period of time where Satan is judged and the earth is destroyed and this great trial takes place, that period of time where those things are happening between the kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth is is this terrifying moment where the universe will be literally consumed by fire. Peter writes, The heavens will pass 
away with a roar. The Greek word for roar is a word that delivers to us the sound of what that would make. It's a clap. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bang, so to speak. We believe in the big bang then. At the end. At the beginning. It's, it's, this, it's this clap. This, 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 this snap. Is how the word is intended to be spoken. And the earth, Peter says, and its works will be burned up. According to his promise, however, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter writes, the elements will be destroyed. The word for elements is the Greek word stoicheion, which refers to the atomic particles, which are the basic building blocks of everything that is. It will all be destroyed. In fact, when Peter says the elements will be destroyed, the word destroyed is even more enlightening because the Greek word literally means loosed. It'll come unhinged. The atoms will split. And what happens when atoms split? You have a nuclear explosion. The universe will literally come apart and explode as if it were one fiery, gigantic nuclear bomb. The heat from this universal explosion, Peter writes about, will disperse everything. In fact, John then says, and I think it's interesting, he says in verse 11, and, and from whose presence earth and heaven flee. Matter perhaps isn't destroyed, but yet it flees to we do not know where in its unhinged state. And perhaps what God will do then is he will collect it all and he will fashion a brand new earth and a a brand new universe. So imagine then you have this explosion and all of a sudden there's nothing. You have a courtroom then that is suspended in nothing, space. You don't see earth below you. You don't see the heavens above you. There are no planets. There are no stars. There's nothing except the redeemed who are seated upon their thrones, the hosts of heaven. Satan and his demons already haven't been sent to the lake of fire. And you have the unredeemed standing. Upon nothing. But they're standing before the great white throne. We can't even begin to imagine this scene. The prophet Daniel had a similar vision. He used different words. He described it a little bit more thoroughly. Listen to his vision. I kept looking, Daniel says, until thrones were set up. The plural Use of thrones implies that Christ's redeemed will will play a role in this final judgment, if if not passing sentence, but I I don't necessarily believe we will. But we will at least play a role in observing and no doubt affirming with solemn unity the glory of God's justice and the righteousness of his verdict. There won't be a believer going, oh, don't do that. We will all in one chorus say, God is right. God is just. He does what is right. 
Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. That's us. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. You can't notice, help but notice the contrast between thousands who are attending him, those that found the narrow gate, and hundreds of millions times hundreds of millions standing before him. Broad is the gate that leads to everlasting destruction. Compared to the, to the millions upon millions who stand before him, Daniel says it's like there were just thousands attending him. And he said the court sat and the books were opened. See, you can't even begin to imagine the scene, can you? I can't. Witnessed by John the Apostle as he's given a tour of the future and the end of planet Earth as we know it. This is a terrifying scene primarily to all of humanity who will observe this fiery explosion, who believe that somehow Earth belonged to them. It was their planet and they'll see in that conflagration that this is in fact the, the hand of God. He created it. He destroys it. And he will remake it. This is an unforgettable setting. Let let me have you notice very quickly here before we stop for today. Not just this unforgettable setting. Let me show you an unavoidable summons. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Look down at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged. Now, Hades, you see the reference there, gave up the dead. This would be the place where their souls are abiding. This is the place of torment. It's referenced ten times in the New Testament, always in relation to torment. When an unbeliever dies, their soul goes to Hades where it is going to await the summons to the final judgment. For the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with whom? The Lord. The soul goes immediately translated to be with the Lord. The body goes in the grave. So he's telling us here that Hades delivers them. And he also says that death and the sea. What is he talking about there? That's not where their souls are. Their souls are in Hades. He's talking about their bodies. Just as every believer will have a bodily resurrection and reunion with their spirit, so the unbeliever is coming to that summons where their body will be physically resurrected, reunited with their soul that has been in torment and Hades, and together now, fitted for eternity, they will stand before God. Which means then they are fitted with immortal bodies that are eternally suited for hell, able to last in the lake of fire forever. No one is missing. 
no matter where their body was lying, no matter how decayed or scattered their dust. John references the sea, which is interesting. He's dealing probably in that with his own culture that believed if your ashes were scattered to the sea, even the gods could never collect them back. And John says that's not true. God will collect it all. He knows where every speck of dust exists. He knows where every strand of DNA is located and he will collect it by his summons to this moment of reckoning. No one will be able to stay in the grave and pull the dirt up over their face and hide. Those who've been killed by accident or those who've been able to die peacefully in their sleep. Those who were burned on some fiery pyre or embalmed in in some Egyptian tomb, those who were laid to rest in satin-lined caskets or those who were buried in rough-hewn pine boxes or wrapped in burlap or never got buried because they were eaten by wild animals, those buried in marble vaults surrounded by their treasures, they will all be raised by the judge as he calls forth Every speck of their being, every strand of DNA from caves and jungles and vegetation and and, and animals and, and, and tombs and ghettos and palaces, they are summoned. Their bodies rise, reunited with their souls. And John writes here in this text, and I saw them. I saw them. Can you imagine what he saw? I saw them. He said, I saw the dead, they, they, the great ones and the small ones. you notice that? In other words, he's saying, I saw the impressive ones. I saw the important movers and shakers. And they stood equally guilty with the world's derelicts and dropouts. I saw the well-connected But they had no strings to pull there. The politically savvy, the wealthy, they're they're standing next to the illiterate and the homeless. It is the great equalizer. The cross is the great equalizer for the redeemed. We are all equally sinful and we've come to Christ for salvation. Those who haven't stand at this great equalizer. It is the the great white throne of God. This is judgment day. And ladies and gentlemen, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. Everyone is simply suspended in space before this terrifying scene. And and you say to me, you're, you're just trying to frighten me. Is it working? I would rather frighten you with the truth than pamper you with some foolish promise that it really doesn't matter. That God will never do that. That hell is such a terrible place, I can't imagine anybody being there. I can't. But the Bible tells me it's true. There will be no anonymous Christians in eternity. Every Buddhist and every Baptist who played with their religion, 
who somehow thought that they were good enough to spend eternity with God are in for a rude awakening. The deceiver said thousands of years ago to our first parents, basically the same message that is being delivered to your generation and mine. It's the same worldwide religious mumbo-jumbo, but it was, it was believable in rebellion. And Eve bought it. The message is basically, you're not going to die. You know what that means? You don't have anything to worry about in, in the future. It's no problem. Don't even think about it. She ate. Adam ate. And what happened? They became afraid and they ran and hid. With these brief phrases, we're told that the court of God's great white throne opens and there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. The judge is on his throne. The condemned are summoned. The prosecution is prepared. There is some defense we've learned in other texts that will come from the religious. But wait a second. We did everything we did in your name. We were running around saying the name of Jesus with everything we did, and he will say, I never knew you. There will be some attempt, but ultimately every mouth will be closed. No defense. The evidence will overwhelm every possible defense. Listen, don't demand a fair trial. Don't think you're going to stand before God and demand a fair trial. You will get it. You will get a fair trial. The evidence will be overwhelming based on your deeds that you deserve hell because your deeds have not been forgiven by Christ. Listen, you know what you need to do? There's only one hope. Here's what you do. Settle out of court. Right? Amen? Settle out of court. While there's time, go back to the judge's chamber and admit, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I have no hope. I can do nothing of myself. I deserve punishment. I'm under the verdict. I'm on my way to hell. Save me. Settle out of court. You can. One day you won't be able to. If you stand at this courtroom scene, there is no settling. There is no plea bargaining. It's over. For the Christian who's been brought to life by the work of God in his life, the initiative of his grace that you've responded to as well, saying yes. You will not stand before this great white throne because you've settled out of court. But all of humanity, every single person, will either be one day standing before this throne or seated around it. You have delivered, Father, to us the truth, the doctrine of hell is as true as the doctrine of heaven. 
In fact, we are shown the horror of this judgment before we will be shown the beauty of the new heaven, a new earth. My friend, where you sit, I wonder, is there a throne upon which you will sit in this coming glory, or will you be standing before the throne of God?